Hello, I'm Neil Ferguson, the Millbank Family Senior Fellow here at the Hoover Institution, where one of my uh, jobs is to chair the Hoover History Working Group. At our most recent seminar, we were very fortunate indeed to have Luke Nichter present. Luke is Professor of History and James H. Kavanaugh Endowed Chair in Presidential Studies at Chapman University. Like me, he is a keen student of uh, the Cold War and in particular the US role in the Cold War. His most recent uh, book, uh, The Seventh, uh, in his publishing career, uh, was an extraordinary work of biography, The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. and the Making of the Cold War. Luke is somebody who's uh, indefatigable and uh, one uh, widespread acclaim for the work he did on the Nixon tapes. But the story of the paper that he presented to us today uh, revolved around the tapes produced by John F. Kennedy, which are somewhat less studied and, and less well known. The title of the talk, How to Tackle a 50-Year-Old Myth, Kennedy, Lodge, and the Diem Coup. Uh, look, welcome to Hoover. Uh, what's the 50-year-old myth? Let's start with that. Well, thanks for having me, Neil. You know, the 50-year-old myth is, um, you know, prior to, or as I, really as I was setting out to write, write this book and plan to research it, the, uh, you know, the, the, perhaps the most controversial issue of Lodge's career was his role while U.S. ambassador in Saigon during the Diem Coup that toppled South Vietnamese President Ngo Dinh Diem in November 1st and 2nd, 1963, and really began the downward spiral, spiral in terms of American involvement, leading within 18 months to the, the, the first deployment of, of U.S. Marines and, uh, and really the, uh, the exponential increase of American military involvement in Southeast Asia after that. For 50 years, the, the history has been pretty well settled, established, um, cited many times that uh, Lodge was a, a, a leader, a mastermind of the, this coup, uh, that he frequently, uh, that, that really the Kennedy White House was, was trying to put the brakes on, uh, on Lodge repeatedly, and Lodge uh, on his, in Saigon, 10,000 miles away, was either, it's been cited he was ignoring orders, he would respond to a long instructions with a terse one sentence, and he was doing who knows what with the coup plotting generals in Saigon. Uh, so I think that that version of history sort of powerfully established in those first Kennedy histories following the president's assassination, sort of reestablished after the leak of the Pentagon Papers in 1971 and the publication of the Church Committee volumes in the 19, mid-1970s had really you know, been accepted as sort of the truth of this era. Uh, and I think what I discovered early on in the research for the book is I, I was skeptical that any, any scholar had really thoroughly researched the subject. And in the course of your researches uh, into Lodge's life, you came across uh, a forgotten tape uh, that shed a uh, an entirely new light on, on Kennedy's role in the 1963 DM coup. Tell us how you found the tape, because that in itself is high-level detective work. So having worked on the Nixon tapes for a number of years, uh, you know, more often than not, um, you know, the tapes are such a rich source of evidence. 
Um, you know, I can't imagine as a historian working on a time period in U.S. history where there wasn't taping, <laughs> because you know, tapes as compared to textual records. And I, and I remember the the first time I, I ever met with um, Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, and and he said to me, you know, if you want to know the policies of the Nixon administration, you must study the memoranda between the president and myself. And I said, well, with a, you know, of course, I was, I had nearly defended my dissertation at that point, so I, I knew all there was to be known. But I said, you know, with all due respect, I think a tape shows much more. It shows a deliberative process, which options were considered, which one won out. Oftentimes, even how you reflected after the fact, sometimes years later. And so I think in the court, in the case of Kennedy, you know, no one had ever, uh, you know, former Kennedy officials had had encouraged me to try to find out what Kennedy's instructions to Lodge were prior to Lodge's departure for Saigon in August of 1963. Did they discuss the coup? Did they discuss the instability, political instability in Saigon and what Lodge might try to do about that in the coming months? Uh, as far as I knew, there, there were no textual records, I mean, no written orders telling Lodge what to do. And so I hoped that maybe there'd be something on the tapes. I never imagined there was a, you know, a tape of, of Kennedy talking to Lodge. I thought maybe there'd be a, a tape of Kennedy talking about Lodge or Kennedy talking to someone else about what uh, the United States should do in South Vietnam in the fall of 1963 as the situation gradually destabilized. So this tape, uh, Kennedy tape 104, uh, it, there is a 20 minute conversation of, of Kennedy's of, of Kennedy uh, giving instructions uh, to Lodge on August 15th, 1963, talking about his assignment coming up. And, and as I interpret, um, Kennedy discussing the possibility of a coup uh, in terms of the best way for uh, the South Vietnamese President CM to leave the scene and be replaced with someone, uh, I think ideally in Kennedy's view, more pro-American, more in sync with Kennedy foreign policy. And at the time, this was a virtually unanimous view in Washington that CM had to go. Of course, we know in hindsight, this was a terrible tragedy that uh, uh, really, instead of stabilizing Vietnam by bringing a leader more responsive to American demands to power, it greatly destabilized Vietnam. Uh, but at the time, you know, I think Lodge thought he was, he was doing what, what Kennedy wanted. This was the universal, the popular view in Washington. And as it turns out, uh, I think that the tape is a very important uh, first piece of evidence uh, that was just recently declassified, and, and hopefully there'll be more in the future. And what's fascinating about uh, about the tape, which you very carefully transcribed, uh, is that it's it's not an order, but it's pretty clearly a green light. Uh, they're discussing quite clearly that DM has to go, and they're also discussing quite clearly that Lodge's job is to find a replacement. There's also, it seems, at least from your account, an awareness that, that assassination for CM is on the cards. Talk a bit about that. Well, this conversation, you know, to set the scene, this is the Oval Office uh, during the beginning of the August recess in, in Washington. It's hot. It's humid. Uh, Lodge is, the, is within a few days of going to Saigon for the first time as ambassador in the third week of August, 1963. 
And it's, it's a fascinating conversation. You know, we're, we're a year out from the conventions from the 1964 presidential election. There's plenty of political talk, uh, talk about who might challenge Kennedy on the, on the Republican side. Uh, there, there's, there's, there's talk of news events and sort of what's going on in Saigon and Washington. You know, Lodge and Kennedy had a, had a long association. They had a, a lot in common. They had a lot to talk about. But the heart of the conversation is about CM and, and what should happen that fall, because Vietnam was taking up more and more of Kennedy's time since the, the Buddhist crisis in May. And it was coming to a head. And I think the impression I get from the tape, you know, as I am someone who tends to almost to a fault understate conclusions rather than overstate, because, you know, I understand, we're, especially working with tapes, where, uh, you know, it, this is it, a tape is rarely the last piece of evidence. There's almost something, you know, records are still classified from this time period. So I feel in many ways that, you know, my job is to sort of carry the, the ball down the field 10 yards until someone else picks it up one day when more evidence is available. But it's clear to me they're talking about removing Zim. Um, and these are two master politicians. I mean, they're almost sort of like two roosters in a cockfight with sort of spurs, you know, on their heels. And as long as neither one makes the first move, you know, no one gets bloodied uh, because they keep coming back around to Zim, but they never quite directly discuss the coup. They certainly don't use that word you know, sort of, well, maybe he has to go. Maybe it's just a matter of who we find to replace him or who we support. And the way they discuss it, they keep coming back to it three or four times in a 20 minute conversation on many other subjects. And so I think they know, you know, these are sort of two masters as you're listening to them. Yeah, I, I come away, you know, thinking Kennedy is a, a much more sophisticated politician than I thought he was. This is not the Kennedy of 1961 in the Bay of Pigs. It's not the Kennedy of 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is a pretty sophisticated politician by the midway point of 63. And of course, Lodge had been in politics since 1936 in the Senate, elected uh, in, at age 34, the same age that Kennedy was in 1952 when he took Lodge's old Senate seat. So it's a fascinating conversation about US politics, the coming election, US foreign policy, and about sort of two very different kinds of Brahmins who in this moment of time were partners, became partners during a very difficult period. Well, I, I know what a meticulous scholar you are, Luke, so I I'll ask this final question with a certain trepidation, but counterfactuals are always uh, of interest to me. And I can remember when I put together a book entitled Virtual History uh, many years ago, that one of the chapters was about what if Kennedy had not been assassinated uh, by Diane Coons. Uh, now, there is certainly a kind of myth of Camelot that still enjoys some popularity in the, in the press that would lead you to imagine a much better outcome in Vietnam if Kennedy had uh, survived and presumably won re-election. I know this is not quite your style of history, but you must have thought a bit about this and particularly about it in light of what you discovered, namely that, that Kennedy was no, was no shrinking dove on the issue of Vietnam. Where do you think things would have gone if he'd stayed as president and not uh, been replaced by Lyndon Johnson through assassination? Well, I think it's a it's a great question. You know, one that I've I've thought about, and and you know, it sort of goes beyond the the immediate, uh, really daunting task of writing a biography of someone with a fifty year career. But I thought about this a little bit because 
you know, what, what I discovered about the Kennedy tapes is, is not just this, this tape in, in, in particular that, that I've been talking about, but there are, I would guess, a, a couple dozen lengthy tapes from the fall of 63 that to this date have never been transcribed. Have, have, I mean, I listened to them quickly just to make sure I didn't find anything that contradicted me or you know, something I should be aware of in terms of publishing the book. But there's quite a body of material that's really never been engaged with scholars. And so I think actually we can come as close as, as ever before to answering the question of what Kennedy would have done by simply listening to those tapes, which have gotten very little attention. And my impression from those tapes is that um, Kennedy would have withdrawn troops. I think he had a plan to do that. Now, I, you know, I, will, I split the difference between those who say Kennedy uh, would, would never have built up Vietnam the way LBJ did, and he would have gotten us out within a year, and, and we would have avoided this great tragedy. The tapes in the fall of 63, and there are quite a few, lead me to believe the truth is somewhere in the middle. I think what Kennedy says repeatedly is, is what's on his forefront is domestic politics, that, that he, you know, that, that Vietnam policy was really his, he considered his weak spot in foreign policy going into the 64 campaign season, that he says in one tape, you know, I, I can't, as Truman lost, he says, as Truman lost China, I can't go to the American people in 64 and ask to be returned to office if I've lost Vietnam. Um, and he leads me to believe that I think Kennedy would have withdrawn some troops, but not until after his election chances were secure. Uh, I think he, Kennedy really, the tapes show, if I could choose one word about his attitude toward Vietnam in the fall of 63, it was cautious. I think he wanted no great ebb and flow in, in what was going on there. I, I think what Kennedy really hoped to do is just freeze the subject for another year through the election. Whatever happens beyond that is sort of too far into the future to predict. And certainly we don't, we don't know. But I think what Kennedy really hoped to do was to remove the irritant of ZM and then really freeze the subject for a year and, and safely get you know coast into re-election. Well, I have to say that uh, no one writes about the 1960s uh, the way you do. I always learn something new. I loved the book uh, when I read it in manuscript. And uh, you've whetted my appetite, Luke, for your next book, which has the working title, The Making of the President 1968, Lyndon Johnson, Hubert Humphrey, Richard Nixon, George Wallace, and the election that changed America. And having tried to make sense of that election in my biography of, of Henry Kissinger, I can only say, I can't wait to read your version. It's bound to be pathbreaking uh, as everything you write is. Uh, Luke Nichter, thanks so much for coming to speak to us at the Hoover History Working Group. The book that you can now buy, because it is out, is The Last Brahmin, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr. and the Making of the Cold War. Thanks again, Luke. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs>